It's good to see you this morning, and I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to 1 Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And this morning we'll be looking at verses 14 through 16. And uh, if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you, uh, you will find our passage on page 992, page 992. Um, it's great to see everyone here this morning. This is our first Sunday uh, without registration, and I can tell that I think we have some more folks here this morning than we normally do, so we're grateful for that and uh, grateful that you're able to attend uh, this morning. Of course, we have a number of folks uh, watching on live stream as well. Um, I'm, I'm a little dressed up a little more spiffy this morning than I normally am. Uh, it's not because this is our first Sunday without registration, although that is exciting. Um, but uh, Gary Perez, one of our members, is going to be installed as the pastor of Morningside Baptist Church in Lincoln, Georgia, this afternoon. And so uh, after our service this morning, I'll have a quick lunch, and then I'll be driving out to Lincoln and uh, be preaching the installment service out there. And so you can be praying for us uh, this afternoon as Gary is installed to be pastor there. And uh, of course, uh, we love Gary and Cindy and are really thankful for them. This morning, though, we're going to turn our attention to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and uh, I'm going to read for us verses 14 through 16, and uh, then we will consider God's word together. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so uh, thankful that you have um, given us the privilege to gather together this morning and to worship you. Um, Father, we pray now that as we turn to your word that you would speak to us. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word that is true and that is powerful. We thank you for your word that is able to tear down walls and barriers and transform lives and hearts. And Father, each one of us, uh, we want to submit ourselves to you this morning and just confess that that we need that work in our lives this morning. We need to hear your word. We need to experience the power of your word in our own lives, in our own hearts. And so, Father, we pray that as you are among us this morning, that you would look upon us with mercy and with grace and that you would speak your word into our lives. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, to this point in Paul's letter to Timothy, uh, Paul has spoken to Timothy and the church in Ephesus, where Paul is ministering, about false doctrine. He's spoken to them about the global purpose and mission of the church. He's spoken to them about the roles of men and women in the life of the church. He's spoken to them about the offices of elder and deacon in the church. And so it's obvious that Paul, as you read through this letter, has a great concern for the local church in the city of Ephesus. And it's evident that Paul has reflected upon their situation, that he's given it thought and prayer, and now he is burdened to offer them direction and guidance. 
In fact, he says just that in our verses this morning. In chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, Paul states very clearly here the purpose why he's written this letter. And he says that the reason why he has written this letter to Timothy is so that, um, he says there in verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you. Here it is, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So Paul is writing so that Timothy and the church would know how one is to behave, how they're to act, how they're to live in the context of the local church. Now, why is Paul so concerned about these things? Why does he have such great interest in the church in Ephesus? Well, as we will see this morning, it has everything to do with Paul's understanding of the church, with who Paul understands the church to be. And what he understands the church is called to do and to be. Consider there in verse 15, Paul's description of the church. The household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Now in in contrast to Paul's great concern for the church in Ephesus, we might wonder why so many Christians today seem apathetic, or worse, even disinterested in the church. It seems that there are many professing Christians today who believe that the church plays a minimal role in their personal relationship with Jesus. That the church might be helpful at some level, but not really necessary. That perhaps it could be useful, but it's not really vital. My friends, understand that as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we feel increasing pressure from the outside in our society and our culture for the church to conform to its ideals and standards, we desperately need to understand who we are and not to capitulate to the outside pressures that even question the legitimacy of the church or the benefit of the church in our society, but rather to know who we are according to the Word of God. Who has God told us that we are? Who has God called us to be as His people? I'm confident that if we have an increasingly biblical understanding of the church, then <clears throat> excuse me, some of us will be more committed to the church than we have been in the past. Some of us will be far more gracious with the church than we have been in the past. And some of us will be far more concerned for the health and the prosperity of the church than perhaps we have been in the past. This morning, I want our thoughts about the church to be shaped by the word of God. And therefore, as we turn to our passage this morning, we want to consider two truths. We are the household of God. We are the church of the living God. And we are a pillar and buttress of truth. First of all, we are the household of God. Look there in verse 14 and then into verse 15. 
Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, the word that's translated there, household, is actually the word oikos. And this word has actually been used three times already in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So when Paul was speaking of the qualifications of an elder back in chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, you'll see there in verse 4, Paul writes, he, speaking of an overseer or elder, must manage his own household, his own oikos, well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, his own oikos, how will he care for God's church? And then again, if you go further along in the chapter, chapter 3, verse 12, Paul uses this word again when speaking of the qualifications of a deacon. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their own children and their own households, oikos, well. So Paul now uses this same word when he speaks of the church. He says that the church is the household, the oikos of God. So as a man has a family, he has a wife and children, so God has a household. He has a family of his own. His bride is the church, and his children are all those who have turned from their sins and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and have been adopted into his family as sons and daughters. So we read in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 16, For all who are led by the Spirit of God... Are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So when Paul says that we are the household of God, what he's saying is that we are the family of God. God is our Father. And we are brothers and sisters in Christ, eternally united to one another by our common faith in the Lord Jesus. Now let me just ask you at a very practical level, is that the way that you think of the church? If you're, especially if you're a consistent attender here at Crawford Avenue Baptist Church, if you're a member of Crawford Avenue Baptist Church, is that the way you think about the people in this room this morning? That this is your family, brothers and sisters in Christ. The way that God describes his people here, the way he identifies us as the household of God, the family of God, should deeply inform the way we think about one another and relate to one another and love one another and serve one another. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that because we are family, we have a special obligation to one another. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, I know that when some of us think of family, maybe we kind of get the warm fuzzies, you know. And that's a, that, that can be a very good thing. Hopefully, if that's the case for you, then that's an indication that you've had somewhat of a healthy family life. And as a result, when you think of family, you think of good things, good feelings come. 
But we also need to remember that even in the healthiest of families, sometimes it can be a challenge. It can be difficult to be the member of a family. Because we know that as we are relating in a family, that all families are made up of sinners. And all families are located in a world that is marked by brokenness and sin. And so we experience hardship and we experience difficulty and we even experience relational conflict with one another. And yet, ironically, it is those very things, the difficulty, the hardship, the trials, that create the strongest bonds and the deepest affections in a family. And we need to be reminded of that even as we think about the community of faith, the family of God, and how we relate to one another as Christians. One author has spoken of the stages of a church's life together or Christian community in this way. He identifies three stages of our life together. The first stage is the honeymoon stage. The second stage is the letdown stage. And the third stage is the covenant stage. Let me read a description of each. The honeymoon stage. Quote, Almost everyone finds their early days in a community ideal. It all seems perfect. They seem unable to see the drawbacks. They see only what is good. Everyone seems great, exceptional, even angelic. That's the honeymoon stage. But inevitably, and if we're married, we know that this time comes, right? There's the letdown stage. The letdown stage, quote, This is the letdown period generally linked to a time of tiredness, a sense of loneliness, some setback, a brush with authority. Faults abound, folks get on your nerves, and you may even begin to believe that you are surrounded by hypocrites who either think only of rules, regulations, and structures, or who are completely disorganized and incompetent. This is the phase when people tend to leave community in search of a quote-unquote ideal one or ideal community. Third is the covenant stage. Quote, if the second phase is completed, folks enter into this phase, one of genuine commitment. In this phase, members of the community are no longer saints or devils, but people each a mixture of good and bad, darkness and light, each growing and each with their own hope. It is at this time of realism that people put down their roots. The community is neither heaven nor hell but planted firmly on earth, end of quote. Now, my friends, let me just say that there are, at times, there are legitimate biblical reasons to leave a church. But I realize, too, especially in our consumeristic age, that oftentimes folks leave churches far too hastily and with far too little thought. And as a result, they miss out on the experience of true community and what it means to be a part of the family of God. I fear that oftentimes people, they miss out on community because they leave too quickly. They leave before they can experience disappointment. They leave before they experience hurt. They leave before they're sinned against. 
They leave before they are able to forgive. They leave before they are able to be forgiven. And as a result, they miss out on what it means to truly live in covenant community in a family with other believers. We are, my friends, as the Apostle Paul says, the household of God. And that means we are family, warts and all. And we love each other because God is our Father and we are brothers and sisters in Christ and we have this deep sense that we don't deserve to be here. That none of us deserve to have a chair at the table. But by God's grace and mercy, he has called us and given us a place at the table and identified us to be sons and daughters, his sons and daughters. And we want to share that grace with one another. So we are the household, the family of God. Second, we see in our text that we are the church of the living God. We are the church of the living God. You know, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God is referred to as the living God. And this this has a number of different implications, but one thing that it indicates is that it sets the God of the Bible in stark contrast with the gods of the Greeks and the Romans, who were false gods made of wood and stone and metal. They were dead. They were lifeless. But the God of the Bible is the living God. And here, Paul says that we are the ecclesia of the living God. The word ecclesia there is translated church. The word literally means assembly or gathering. So we are the assembly. We are the gathering of the living God. And the Bible teaches us that when we, as the people of God, gather and assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that God is among us, that he dwells with us. This is one of the great promises of the Bible. You know, the Bible teaches us that for each individual Christian, that we, when we place our faith in the Lord Jesus, that God's Spirit comes to us and we become the temple of the living God, that He dwells in us and with us by His Spirit. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Here it is. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Our bodies have now become the temple of the Holy Spirit, as God's Spirit has taken residence within us. But the Bible not only speaks of individual Christians as the temple of God, but the Bible also says that corporately, when we gather together as his people, that we are the temple of the living God, that God dwells among us in a unique and special way by his Spirit. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to to verse 22, the Apostle Paul says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So individually we are the temple of God and God's Spirit dwells within us if we've trusted in the Lord Jesus. But then corporately when we gather, God uniquely and, uh, and, and especially dwells among us and is present with us. Now my friends, this is a powerful truth. The living God dwells among his people, the church. And let me just add here that there are, there are ways in which you can know God, in which you can experience God with the people of God corporately gathered that you cannot know him and experience him individually on your own. I'm sure you've heard some people say, well, you know, I don't, I don't need to attend church on Sunday because I worship God on the golf course. Or I worship God in the deer stand, right? And let me just say, that, that's a good thing. I mean, in part. If you're on the golf course or you're in the deer stand, you should worship God. The Bible says that we should do all things to the glory of God. So if you're on the golf course or in the deer stand or you're walking or you're working or whatever you are doing, you should do all things to the glory of God. We should live lives of worship to God. But the Bible also teaches us that there are ways that we can know God and experience God and receive his grace and mercy when the church is gathered together and his spirit is among us that we cannot experience on our own. God has promised to dwell with us and to minister to us in a unique way as we gather as his church and we hear the word of God preached. And we take the Lord's Supper and we celebrate Christian baptism and we pray for one another and we encourage one another and we sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. You see, something is unique is happening in those moments. And, and God promises that as we gather together and do those things, as he has commanded us to do them, that he will be with us and he will be ministering and encouraging and convicting and comforting and offering hope and sustaining us by his grace. So that when we worship, God is among us and he is doing something. You know, during this pandemic, we have tried as a church to operate with the balance of caring for the physical health of our congregation. And we want to be wise and careful in that regard, but also at the same time esteeming the value of gathered worship. And we want to try to do both those things. And so even now as we've removed the registration, there are those folks who of course are in more of a high-risk category, and we would encourage those folks with consultation of their doctors and so forth to take whatever necessary precautions that they need to. And we understand that. But at the same time, we want to make it a priority that with wisdom and prudence and when it's, it's wise to do so, to get back together and to worship and to gather together as the people of God. Because God has commanded us to do so. And because it's good for us to do so, we need, as the people of God, to worship. We need to worship. 
There are many churches that have attempted to strike this similar balance. Some have maybe been a little bit more aggressive than we are in terms of trying to get back together and others have been a bit more cautious, but in principle have tried to take the same approach and have the same concerns. I will say though that it's especially concerning that in a time like this, that some prominent Christian leaders have used the pandemic as an opportunity to diminish the public gathering of God's people. There was one prominent Christian leader, I believe it was back in June, who announced that their church would no longer be meeting for the rest of the calendar year. And in doing so, one of the justifications that he provided was, and he said this with great confidence, was that nowhere in the Bible does God command his people to gather. And therefore, as a church, we don't need to gather for the rest of the year. Now listen, my friends, you need to understand that the word church, the word ecclesia, actually means gathering, assembly. It is at the heart of who we are as a people. It is at the heart of our identity as the church of the living God. We gather, we assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to worship God and to minister to one another. And not only that, the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, do not neglect to meet together. Do not neglect to assemble, to gather, as is the habit of some. But encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So yes, let's be wise, let's be appropriate, let's be gracious, especially with those who have particular health concerns. But also, let us not take for granted or despise the gathering of God's people, the worship of the church. If we do so, we will do so to our own detriment and to our own spiritual malnourishment. And some of you may have already been feeling that as you, you go week after week, month after month, perhaps unable to meet with other Christians and gather together for worship. You start to feel that spiritually. And there's a reason for that. We are the assembly. We are the gathering of the living God. And when we gather, it matters. And when we gather, God is among us. We are the church of the living God. Third, so first of all, we are the household of God. Secondly, we are the church of the living God. Third, we are the pillar and buttress of truth. Look there in verse 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Here it is, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So the first word there can be translated pillar or column. The second word is, uh, can be translated support or foundation. Here in uh, the English Standard Version, it's translated buttress. The official definition of a buttress is a projecting structure built against a wall to support or reinforce it. In 2011, uh, there was a group from our church that took a mission trip to the nation of Turkey, and we were involved in Bible distribution in Turkey. And one of the things we got to do when we were there was we got to visit the city of Ephesus. And so it's the same city that Paul is addressing here as he writes to Timothy, and Timothy is a pastor in the city of Ephesus. And one of the things we were able to do is to walk through some of the old ruins of that city. And it was really a remarkable experience. Uh, and one of the structures, at least some of the structure is still left there, is the 
uh, temple to Artemis. Artemis was a goddess who was worshipped particularly in the city of Ephesus, but really throughout the entire Roman Empire, and it was a magnificent structure. And much of it is gone now, but still standing there strong and tall, lifted up into the sky, are the pillars, the columns of the temple to Artemis. And as the Apostle Paul wrote these words to the church in Ephesus, surely in Timothy's mind and in the, uh, the members of the church of Ephesus in their mind would have been these tall, strong, iconic pillars and columns that stood and that uh, held up so many of the great works of architecture of the Greco-Roman world. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is that as these strong, tall pillars held up these great works of architecture across the Greco-Roman world, so the church is to be a pillar of truth. It is to hold up, to set out for display. It is to proclaim and lift up high the truth of God's Word and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul reflects on this responsibility of the church, he goes on to cite an early Christian creed or hymn that is reflective of the truth that we are to defend, the truth that we are to proclaim. Look there in verse 16, he goes on to say, in the 15 he says, a pillar and buttress of truth, and then that naturally leads him into verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness, and here's the hymn, the confession. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So this is, a, this is a Christ-centered hymn. In fact, the entire hymn, the entire confession is focused on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Notice there it says, he was manifested in the flesh. This is referring to the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. The eternal Son of God took on flesh, became a baby, and he dwelt among us. He was manifested in the flesh. He goes on to say that he was vindicated by the Spirit. This is a reference to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that after Jesus died on the cross and paid the penalty for our sins, the Spirit vindicated. He, he put his stamp of approval, his seal of approval on the person and the work of Jesus Christ by raising him from the dead. He was raised from the dead by the Spirit of God. So he was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Then next, notice, he was seen by angels. In all the gospel accounts, angels are present at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the angels were eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. They saw him raised from the dead, and as a result, they bore witness and testimony to his resurrection. He goes on to say, he was proclaimed among the nations. And it is truly remarkable that just within one generation, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ was proclaimed throughout the entire Roman Empire. And now today, the Lord Jesus is proclaimed in every nation in the world. The hymn goes on to say he was believed on in the world. So not only was Christ proclaimed widely, he was also embraced and he was believed, he was trusted. So that peoples all over the world, whether Jew or Gentile, male or female, rich or poor, old or young, they believed they trusted, they rested in the Lord Jesus, and they followed him. And then finally, he was taken up in glory. 
The word there taken is analambino. It's often used to refer to the ascension of Jesus. And so the idea here is that the Lord Jesus, who died for our sins, who was raised from the dead, has now been taken. He's ascended up to the Father, and he sits in power and in glory at the right hand of God. Now, my friends, the Apostle Paul is indicating that this is the truth we proclaim. This is the truth that we are committed to. This is the truth that the church is called to defend and to lift up high. This truth, on the one hand, creates the church and sustains the church, but it is also the truth now that as the church, we are responsible to defend and we are responsible to proclaim. It is a tremendous responsibility, and we should also say it is a tremendous privilege. As you know, in our own day, there is a great vacuum a great void when it comes to the matter of truth. In fact, many in our day who are considered to be the most informed, the most educated, question even the reality of truth. Is there even such a thing as truth? And if there is, can we even know it? In fact, they would say that if you feel that something is true or you're convinced that something is true, well, that's just because of your upbringing or the cultural influences in your life, but there's no way we can really know what is true. And as a result, there is rampant confusion and deep unrest and unsettledness among people so that people genuinely struggle. And maybe you find yourself in this place this morning genuinely struggle to understand, why was I even born? Do I have any purpose in life? Why am I here? People struggle with the basic categories of good and evil. Is there even such a thing as good and evil with morality? And so it leads to despair, oftentimes hopelessness, restlessness. And my friends, in such an environment... It is the church that is called to proclaim the truth. And such moral confusion, theological confusion, it is the church that is called to be a pillar and a buttress of truth. And listen, my friends, in such an environment, if the church does not proclaim the eternal, immutable, unchangeable truth of God, then who will? If the church does not proclaim the hope that there is in Jesus Christ, that yes, there is truth, and yes, there is a Savior, and there's a Redeemer, and you can be redeemed, and you can have hope, and you can experience salvation and life eternal. If the church does not proclaim that message, then who will proclaim it? I know that some of you like you know, home renovation shows, and oftentimes they'll go into a room, and they'll start making plans how they want the, cha- the room to be changed. And then they'll tell the architect or the contractor, and the architect and the contractor will say, well, I'm sorry, that wall there that you want to remove, you can't remove that because that's a load-bearing wall. And you remove that wall, and it'll compromise the entire structure. Well, listen, my friends, in the world today, the church is the load-bearing wall. We are the pillar and the buttress of truth, and you remove it, and it compromises the entire structure. What a responsibility we have been given as a church to speak and proclaim the truth and to give people hope, to give people life, 
to give people something to live for in the midst of such confusion and despair. Paul says here that the church of the Lord Jesus is called to be the conduit, the mouthpiece, the herald of truth. And let me just say that is one of the reasons why we here at Crawford Avenue Baptist Church so value the centrality of the preaching of God's word. Without the truth of God, we are lost and hopeless and without direction. So here, who are we? Who are we according to the Apostle Paul? We are the household of God. We are, as Paul says here, the church of the living God. We are the pillar and the buttress of truth. I said as we began this morning that if we have more of a biblical understanding of the church, then some of us would be more committed to the church than perhaps we've been in the past. Some of us would be more gracious with the church than perhaps we've been in the past. Some of us would care more about the prosperity and the health of the church than perhaps we have in the past. John Stott, a New Testament scholar and pastor who has passed away now, he writes these words, quote, If the church is central to God's purpose as seen in both history and the gospel, it must surely also be central to our lives. How can we take lightly what God takes so seriously? How dare we push to the circumference what God has placed at the center, end of quote. Given that the church is so central to God's purpose to glorify himself, to God's purpose to exalt his son, what role does the church have in your life? Are the people of God, is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ central in your life? May we see from the Apostle Paul here his burden, his love, his passion for the church. And may we not take lightly what God takes so seriously. And may we not treat cavalierly what God loves so dearly. His people, the church, the household of God, the pillar and buttress of truth. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word. And Lord, we want, as your people, we want to know who we are and understand who we are according to your word. We don't want to make it up. We want to study your word and understand your word. And then we want to live out our identity as your people. Help us to do that. Lord, thank you for the blessing, even this morning, of being able to gather as your people and to worship. We pray for ourselves here at Crawford Avenue that you would make us a family that love and care for one another, that are committed to one another. We pray, Father, that as we gather and as we assemble, we would truly know your presence and your power among us as you change us and transform us. And we pray, Father, that we would be faithful to speak your truth, both as we gather for worship and in our daily lives, that we would defend and proclaim the gospel of your Son. Help us, Lord, with these things. Help us to apply your word to our hearts and to the life of our church. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray.